Our passage this morning is Luke 17. We will be looking at verses 1 through 10 as we continue in our series through the Gospel of Luke. The title of our sermon is Unworthy Servants. And our key words for our worshipers in training are temptation, faith, and servant. Now, one of the first things that struck me when I moved out of my parents' home was that to begin living on my own was this reality of responsibility. And as much as I thought I did, I really didn't have much responsibility living under my parents' roof. And truth be told, looking back, I can confidently say on this side of things that that is a really nice place to be. I had a job, but I got to keep all of the money. I didn't have to pay tons of bills. My money didn't go to children for their never-ending expenses. I wasn't concerned about oil changes and insurance costs and refinancing a mortgage and why my water bill is so high this month and tuition costs and, and making sure everyone is where they need to be at the right time. I woke up. I went to school. I participated in various activities of my choosing. I went to my job. I went back home. And I went to bed. I lived a very simple, carefree life. But the reality of life is that maturity comes, and with that comes great responsibility. It comes with duty. And we are able for a time to live off of what's provided for us. But like a baby bird learning to fly for the first time, we need to be pushed out of the nest. And in so many ways, this is an illustration of the Christian life. When we first become Christians, it is easy to live off of the excitement and all of the joy of our conversion. We're learning new things every day. We are growing in our understanding and our love and our commitment to the Lord Jesus and all of the church. And it's good and it's right for a new Christian to be very closely attached to other more mature and seasoned believers. And we need to seek counsel from one another. We need to think through decisions and be informed and and have others counsel us in those as we are growing. And we will always have that need for more mature believers in our lives. However, as we mature, we take on more and more responsibility in our Christian lives. There comes a time in our Christian lives when we need to understand that maturity in the faith comes with responsibility. It comes with a sense of duty. We must be more and more aware of who we are in light of who God is. And we must recognize what he requires of us. Sometimes it comes very easily. Other times it's a bit of a struggle. And there are certainly many things in the Christian life that don't come naturally. Oftentimes they're very uncomfortable. They're going to put us in situations that we would rather avoid altogether. That is part of maturing, isn't it? Christians should want to grow. 
But truth be told, that doesn't mean that the Christian life gets easier. In fact, I think I can argue that it gets more difficult. However, it is a rich and very rewarding blessing. The writer of the book of Hebrews writes in chapter 5 about the importance of Christian maturity when addressing a people who seem to be stunted in their growth. He wrote this, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So we get this picture that the people that he's writing to are sitting around a table and it's a bunch of grown adults sucking the milk of a bottle. So you see, he instructs us that we will be on milk for a while when we're new Christians, but we shouldn't stay there. We need to move on to solid food. We need to start to have meat in our diet. But maturing to meat, uh, to get to this place, brings a whole new level of responsibility. And in this passage we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see what some of those responsibilities are. And truth be told, they're not very easy. Now, Christians are oftentimes very reluctant to talk about duty. As if it's a terrible thing to insist that God actually requires something from us. But it's unimaginable that God would instruct us in how to live And yet that we would go on in our Christian lives and not do it. Not as a means of our salvation, but as wise ambassadors of his kingdom who love him and want to do what he has told us that he would be glorified in us. Now, if you recall up to this point for several chapters now, Jesus has been addressing the Pharisees. He's delivered some pretty scathing rebukes of them in what we've looked at. But now Jesus' focus is shifting on to his disciples. Now Luke doesn't indicate that Jesus moved from his location. Most likely he's in the same place he has been since chapter 15. And all of those he's been talking to are still around to hear what he has to say. So what does Jesus instruct the disciples? That they might be maturing, growing believers, moving from spiritual milk unskilled in the word of righteousness to spiritual meat with powers of discernment trained by constant practice to discern good and evil. Let's look at what he says beginning in Luke 17 and verse 1. And Jesus said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. Now, Jesus is going to 
instruct his disciples on not giving offense to others. And in a minute, we're going to see him also talk about not taking offense. But first, not giving offense. Now, notice first what Jesus says here. Temptations to sin are sure to come. Isn't it comforting to know that our Lord understands our condition? He understands our weakness. He understands the reality of life in this world. Of course, remember we saw way back in chapter 4 of Luke that Jesus himself was tempted. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As a quick side note, I want to I point something out to you. Because oftentimes I talk to Christians who are very concerned about being tempted. Brothers and sisters, we will be tempted. Jesus' temptation was not some kind of fictional tale or a mere going through the motions for him to prove a point. He was really enduring actual temptation. He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. So my point is this. We're often quick to beat ourselves up over temptation. But temptation is not the issue. Succumbing to that temptation. That is the issue. All of us are going to be tempted each and every day of our lives. The question is, what do we do with it? That's what's important. And we can think of our temptations as an opportunity for us to obey God, to bring Him glory in our response. So the issue here for Jesus is not that we will each be tempted. What is His point? Look again at the second part of verse 1. But woe to the one through whom the temptations come. You see, here's the problem. The issue is being the tempter. Or the temptress. And listen, this has some very heavy implications. Jesus says, if you are one through whom temptation comes, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast in the sea that you should cause one of God's children to sin. What a vivid illustration. Now here's how we need to read this. Jesus isn't saying that one through whom temptation comes will have a millstone tied around their neck and tossed into the sea. He says it would be better if that were the case. In other words, the attention here is on Jesus saying, woe to you through whom temptation comes. This is far worse. In other words, what Jesus is saying, it is better for you to die, even a horrific death, than to cause another person to stumble and to incur the judgment that comes as a result. Now I can think of many ways that all of us might be the cause of another's temptation. I want to give us a few examples of that this morning. And I hope through all of this that we're considering how might I be putting temptations in front of others? One way we might do that is by flaunting our Christian liberties. As Christians, we enjoy a life of liberty in Jesus Christ. 
We're not enslaved to sin or to this world. We are given many wonderful liberties to enjoy that God has given to us as gifts. However, what we enjoy in our liberty may be things which others have been currently enslaved to or currently are enslaved to. And they're unable to enjoy the same things as liberties. Now, this doesn't mean we live our lives in secret. It doesn't mean we sneak around and pretend like we're not doing certain things if they're not sinful. However, it does mean that we are very watchful. We are very thoughtful when it comes to our Christian liberties, that we're not flaunting them before those whose convictions may, as a result of their former associations, be different than ours. Out of a love for one another, we dare not tempt others through our liberty. Because to do that is to enslave them. Another way we might tempt others is through the way that we present ourselves. The way that we dress. And this goes for women and for men. The way we we present ourselves before others matters. The Bible speaks frequently of the importance of, of modesty and of adorning ourselves not externally but internally with the gospel. And if our adorning of our bodies is done in such a way as to draw attention to ourselves physically, we are going to cause temptation. What about gossip? Do you gossip? I think most of us don't pause to think of how destructive and how divisive gossip truly is within the body of Christ. You see, you're not only exposing the sin of your own heart, you're also asking another person to join in that sin with you. You're asking that person that you are gossiping to to join you in slander and backbiting. And most people aren't strong enough or clued in enough to the fact that gossip is being presented in that moment to put a stop to it, to tell you to stop telling them about it. And so temptation arises and the flesh is prone to entertain conversation instead of cut it off completely. We tempt others to sin through false doctrine. Those who teach doctrine contrary to the word of God cause others to be tempted to believe false things about God. And to do so is to use God's name in vain. Here specifically, we're talking about those who who lead people away from the true gospel, away from Christ, away from Scripture, away from the deposit faithfully entrusted to the church through the apostles. And if you need any example of who these kinds of people are, just watch a televangelist on TBN. They are everywhere. And they are tempting many millions of people to love the world instead of loving Jesus Christ. And fifth, what about inconsistency? When we live inconsistent, hypocritical lives, we put a temptation in front of others. As Americans, we take our right to privacy very seriously. We don't like being watched by others. We don't want people to notice what we're doing. We don't want people to see us. We love being anonymous. 
But according to Jesus, that changes when we become Christians. When we become Christians, it doesn't matter what people see. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about security or the government spying on us and all those kinds of things. And it doesn't mean you're supposed to be concerned about your reputation all the time and, and to be insulted if people get the wrong impression about you. But the point is this. As Christians, we are to live very different lives from the world. And we should be an example of what pleases God in the life of one of his children. Now, of course, we're not going to do it right all the time. We're going to fail. We are going to sin. However, there should be consistency in our lives. People are going to notice. And if you are a professing Christian and you're harsh or you're unapproachable or you make promises you don't keep, you're going to cause other people to stumble. People are going to notice that. They're going to see that. They're going to say, I don't see any power in your Christianity. What is the point? I'm not treated any different by you than I am by everyone else in the world. Jesus is saying, my followers will assume that burden. You are not your own anymore. Your life is not yours. It belongs to Christ. You don't have the same way of life. Now, those are just five quick examples of how we might cause others to stumble in temptation. And only God knows how much damage has been done through wrong attitudes, through self-righteousness, through gossip, and on and on and on we could go. So Jesus says here, it is better for us to die than for us to live a lifestyle that causes others to to stumble. It's better for us to die than to teach false doctrine or have an attitude that drives others away from Christ. That's a very somber word for us as Christians. And truth be told, I agree with Philip Ryken when he wrote this, I must confess that I do not understand what woe could await a true believer who has scandalized others away from Jesus Christ. That could make a horrible physical death preferable. But I do believe what the Savior is saying. Maybe the woe is an official dressing down at the judgment seat of Christ with shipwrecked little ones there as accusers. Such a one is saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Whatever Jesus meant, death now is better than that woe. So you see the importance here for Christians is that we are taking watch over our own hearts and our own actions as to not cause others to be tempted through us. And given the way, given the importance of what Jesus is saying here, he goes on to tell his disciples, pay attention to yourselves. Watch your teaching, watch your lifestyle, watch your attitude, and woe to you if you don't. Now from this, Jesus goes on to remind us that when it comes to temptation and to sin, we're not only to watch our own hearts, but we are also our brother's keeper. Look at the second part of verse 3. 
If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now Jesus' focus here shifts away from giving offense to now talking about not taking offense. We have a responsibility to watch out for one another. We must provide accountability. We must give warning when we see sin or unwise and unhealthy patterns in the lives of one another. And doing so is oftentimes very messy. It's difficult. It is not comfortable. Both parties struggle whenever it happens. But it's crucial. And we cannot have authentic, genuine, loving, unified Christian community if we do not do it. Most of us, even though we struggle internally when we encounter the sin of others, most of us are content to live in comfortable, culpable silence. But Jesus doesn't give us that option, does he? If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now I must say, if you enjoy doing this, then you are not qualified to rebuke someone. You have a massive plank in your own eye. And to remove the speck from your brother's eye is hypocrisy. However, most of us are probably more guilty of simply letting things continue on without saying a word. It's a fear of man. That is no way to get through life together as the body of Christ. And when it comes to being rebuked, being corrected, there really are basically two tendencies, and each of us tends toward one or the other. We're either very easy to take offense when we are confronted. We assume another person's motives. We get in defensive mode. We think we're being judged wrongly. We justify our actions, and we feel less important or loved as a result of it. That's one extreme. The other is that we are cold and we are callous toward those who seek to bring clarity and accountability to us. We don't listen to them. We brush it off as useless chatter and we don't care what they have to say. We may not be offended, but we just don't care. But you see, we can't be either one of those extremes. We're called as brothers and sisters in Christ to lovingly come alongside one another, to hold one another accountable to God's word, to humbly address those we've been hurt by and offer forgiveness. And when that forgiveness is sought, we must grant it. Jesus reminds us several times over in the Bible, no matter how many times someone asks for forgiveness, You must forgive them. Notice in this passage, this person has sinned against him seven times in one day. And seven times in that day he has come to seek forgiveness. And he says, you must forgive him. It's very important that we recognize that the motivation for us as God's children to forgive others is that we have been forgiven 
in Christ Jesus. And here, Jesus is not dealing with someone who refuses to seek forgiveness. He's not talking about those who are insincere in their requests or those who have, uh, are wanting to use that as a means to get away with all sorts of things and just walk all over you. Those are important considerations. That's not Jesus' focus here. He's instructing the disciples, and in doing so, he's instructing us. He's saying, I want you to be a forgiving people. No bitterness, no rancor. I, I don't want that anger. I want that to be put away from you. The point is, once you become a Christian, Jesus says you're no longer your own. You don't have the right to nurse grudges toward others. You don't have the right to say, well, my life is my own business. Who cares what people think when they see my life? If they're offended, that's their problem. Are you the kind of person that thinks that way? If they don't like it, they can just deal with it. You see, that's you giving an offense. You don't care about others. You care about yourself. Or perhaps you're the type of person who always hears the worst when someone says something to you. Can you believe she said that to me? Can you believe he didn't do what I asked him to do? Can you believe they completely changed something without asking my opinion? That's you taking offense. These are not the ways of disciples. You see, the point is when we become Christians, our attitudes change and the way that we interact with others changes. The way we hear changes. We have a very important responsibility as Christians toward one another. But you know, the Bible talks about that as iron sharpening iron. And that causes friction, and that causes heat, and sometimes it even causes sparks to fly. But it's a necessary part of the Christian life. Notice what Jesus doesn't tell us that we can do. He doesn't tell us that we can just run away from our problems and our disagreements or to pretend like they don't exist. You just brush them under the rug or stuff them in the closet. Surely nobody will notice. I know we've all been in those situations before. We've been in those relationships and they never work, do they? Running away from our problems solves nothing. It creates more problems. It creates resentment and bitterness in our hearts. And giving offenses and taking offense is reckless. It is spiritually immature. And it fractures the body of Christ. That's not what God wants from us. Our lives as Christians are open books. We need to be open. We need to be honest with one another. Loving one another, forgiving one another. How many times? Every time forgiveness is sought. Every time. Now that's a hard word for us. And it should cause us to examine our hearts and to see if we are interacting with one another in the ways that Jesus is calling us to. It should cause us to wonder if we are loving one another rightly. And what we find out is, it's not just a hard word for us. It was also a hard word for the disciples 
as well. Look how the disciples respond from Jesus' instruction, beginning in verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. You see, these things Jesus is describing about our attitudes and our actions and how we interact with one another, forgiving, not taking offense. This is by no means easy stuff. In fact, the disciples were certain it wasn't possible. So what did they resort to? There's maybe two ways to look at this, but what it seems to me to mean is that they are beginning to shift blame. Well, we would do that, Lord. But you see, we're not capable. We don't have enough faith. And while it all sounds good in theory, that's just not something that's possible for us. But you see, Jesus does not accept that answer from them. No, he turns it on its head completely and he says quite the opposite. He says, no, in fact, you do have the faith. It's not a matter of feeling capable. It's not a matter of willing yourself to do it. It is a matter of faith. However, if you are a Christian, you have all that is necessary. You only need faith that is the size of a mustard seed. You see, what Jesus is communicating to the disciples is that they and we simply need to act on what we already know. And if we exercise the faith that we possess we will accomplish far more than we could ever imagine. So what does that mean? What does that look like to exercise our faith? It's simply this, that we trust God's word and that we seek to be obedient to his word. And that we know that when we are walking in obedience and trusting the Lord, that he will supply all of the grace that is necessary to fulfill what he has called us to do. Remember back in Luke chapter 12, we got a sense of what Jesus is alluding to here. He, he said to the disciples, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. In other words, he was telling them to trust the Lord. Place your faith in God and he will provide you with what is needed. He will give you the grace in that moment to obey him and to be faithful to him and what he has commanded. So in the context of what Jesus has commanded, namely rebuking another person in their sin, confronting them and seeking to be reconciled with them, this is very practical. Now, surely all of us have been in a situation where we've needed to address someone else before. And leading up to that moment, we feel nervous, we're fearful. You might feel like you would rather die than talk to them right now. But we cannot. We cannot run away. We cannot, as the disciples assume, base our obedience on our feelings. With a renewed mind, we must remember what Jesus is teaching us here. Trust God. He will provide in the moment. 
It may feel terrible, but the results of obeying God are far greater than these momentary comforts of ignoring an issue or trying to brush it under the rug. It may be very uncomfortable. However, the result is so rewarding. I've had Christians tell me, well, I would have done that, but I just didn't have a peace about it. Well, guess what? If we made all of our decisions based on a feeling, we would be in a lot of trouble. Well, I prayed about it, and I just don't feel like it's the right time. There's a right time to obey God? When will that be? Brothers and sisters, as a Christian, you have all that you need to accomplish all that God has commanded of you by His grace. We're not going to do it perfectly. Our flesh will get in the way from time to time, and we will have a battle raging inside of us sometimes, but you are equipped, and you have all that you need in the Lord, and He will give you grace for the moment, even when it seems impossible. Now, friends, there are some of you here this morning who have no faith in Christ at all. And as a result, you have no ability to please or to obey God. The first act of obedience in any person's life before God is to repent of sin and to put our faith, to put all of our trust, to put all of our hope and our allegiance and our identity and to see all of our treasure wrapped up in Jesus Christ alone. And apart from Christ, your relationships with everyone else are without a foundation and they will continue to completely fall apart. They're filled with resentment and bitterness and restless discontentment. They're focused on all of the wrong things. And they're always a source of difficulty and angst. But I assure you, apart from Christ, you will continue to seek meaning in your relationships and you will continue to come up short. To have no faith in Christ is to be without the ability to be at peace with other people to interact and to communicate with others effectively, to have joy when relating to others. Why? Because your heart is set against God. And when your heart is set against God, you are His enemy. And as enemies, you are enslaved to your sinful nature, which in every way brings discontentment and disorder and a complete lack of peace. You see, the problem is that apart from Christ, you are most important in your own eyes. And until you are reconciled with God, until you are made right with your Creator, you will be the most important person in the world according to you. You see, apart from Christ, we make ourselves to be our own gods. We must come to the end of ourselves before we are able to live upon God, to experience the great riches of His grace, the great feast of His communion, the great joy of His love. Friends, if you are without Christ, I commend Him to you this morning. He will never fail you. You will never have to confront Him in sin. He is the greatest friend any sinner can ever have. 
Will you repent and believe on Christ today? Jesus goes on with his disciples in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, Jesus here enters into this short parable to help the disciples, lest they become full of themselves and their obedience. Given the immensity of what Jesus has just commanded, to not cause others to stumble, to rebuke others in their sin, to extend unlimited forgiveness to others, to live by faith and absolute trust in God in all circumstances, to hear this and to have the ability to walk in all of these things, it's going to be our tendency to get a little bit full of ourselves. We may be Christians, but the flesh will continue to want to be applauded and recognized by others. Did you see how I just forgave that person? Did you see how lovingly and gently I corrected them in their sin? Isn't that wonderful? Ah, We want to be applauded and, and to be thought to be great in our Christianity, in our obedience. And you see here, Jesus is very concerned about our hearts. Because when we are living faithful lives, committed to the Lord, and walking in what He has called us to do, we cannot be puffed up. We cannot be proud and arrogant. We must recognize who we are in light of who we were and what God has done to make us who He has made us to be. Jesus points out in verse 7, when a worker has done part of his work, it's not time for them to rest and recline. It's a rhetorical question he asks here. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and take a seat and rest? Well, no. No, he still has work to do. Wouldn't you say to him... Rather, prepare supper for me, dress properly, serve me so that I can eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink. Yes, of course. Well, does he thank the servant because he did what he was commanded? Does he deserve some kind of special treatment? No. Now, context here is very important. This is not a master and slave relationship like we probably think of when we think of slaves. We're all accustomed to think about slaves through the lens of American slavery, but that's not what's going on here. In the Bible, slavery or servanthood really has to do with what used to be called indentured servitude. A a servant was someone who had fallen into debt, they, they didn't have bankruptcy then. So if you fell into debt and you, you developed debts far greater than what you were able to pay, you were obliged to go 
in service to your creditor until that debt was paid off. Which means the creditor owed you labor. He, he owned your labor, but he didn't own you as a person. This is very different than slavery we are accustomed to. So a creditor couldn't just do anything that they wanted to do to you. But he did own your labor, and you did owe him your work. You couldn't go elsewhere. You had to work off your debt until it was paid off. The only other option, and we see this in Matthew 18, is that the, uh, that the person is thrown into jail. So you see, being a servant was a great advantage for them to be able to pay off their debt. And this should help us to understand what Jesus is saying here. This servant has no illusions whatsoever that the creditor owes them some kind of thanks. Now, Jesus is not trying to talk against common courtesy here. There's no reason why we shouldn't tell someone thank you. But what Jesus is talking about is the situation where a servant owes their master. And what does the master owe the servant? Nothing. Nothing at all. Isn't this the position we find ourselves in with God? God is our creator. We have rebelled against him. He is our sustainer. We have submitted, uh, we have refused to submit to his authority. But God made a way for us anyway that we not be justly condemned, but rather we are freed. We are freed from the judgment and the wrath of God in Jesus Christ. And so what does God owe us? Nothing. Nothing. You know, sometimes people will be in very difficult circumstances or will be enduring suffering or hardship. And our tendency is to say things like, why would God do this to me? Or, I don't deserve this kind of treatment. Or, God must not love me. Well, if you're a Christian, you should know that the answer to all of this is not what your heart assumes. Brothers and sisters, God has given us far more than we could ever deserve, and He has done so with love, and He has chosen to do so freely. God has given us all that we need for this life, for godliness, and most importantly, for our salvation, and that through us, He will be glorified. So Jesus' point here should be very well taken. When you have done all that you were commanded to do by God, don't turn to God and ask Him to give you thanks. No, we must say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what is our duty. But you know what's so wonderful about this? If you are in Jesus Christ... You are much more than a servant. You are a child of God. He loves you. And He doesn't just love you now. He will love you forever. But this should break down our insistence on being recognized in this world. Have you ever done something or served in some way, either on your own or with the church, and you felt like it went completely unnoticed and it got you all unnerved? 
Now, I hope you are reminded regularly at Ephesus Church that we do love one another and are thankful for the service that each person puts forward. However, if it is truly a service unto the Lord as it ought to be, what shall we say? We aren't owed anything. We have Christ, and Christ is all the recognition that we need. We have his friendship. We have his love. We have his affirmation. We have his righteousness as ours that we can stand rightly before the Father. That's what we need, and that's all that matters. Brothers and sisters, Jesus calls us to watch over ourselves and one another, forgiving one another, believing God, And listen, this is nothing extraordinary. This is the way we are supposed to live. This is the Christian life. This is our responsibility. And as we mature as Christians, we should grow more and more into it. And so this life, extraordinary as it may be, is ordinary Christianity. And I do pray that as a church, we could be extraordinarily ordinary. And you know what's beautiful about the ordinary Christian life? I'm reminded of an earlier passage in Luke chapter 12. Jesus said this, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. On that occasion, Jesus revealed what he will do for faithful, watchful servants. When the day is over, he will make them sit down and he will wait on them. Brothers and sisters, he will make us sit down and he will serve us. That's the kingdom feast with Jesus. Jesus is warning his followers against pride and presumption. But the eternal marvel is that ultimately he will do for us what our earthly masters will never do. And it's all by his grace. There is nothing that we can claim. There is no ground for pride. Only eternal praise in Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, would you make us to be a people who take watch over our own hearts? that we not cause others to stumble, putting temptation before them? Lord, would you help us to be a people who lovingly confront one another in sin? It's not push issues under the rug or pretend that they're not a problem or to run from them, but with love and humility that we would go to one another and continually seek to be reconciled, to forgive one another as often as forgiveness is sought. 
Would you make us to be those kinds of people, O God? We pray, Father, that you would help us to remember in very difficult circumstances, no matter what we face, that you have already given us all that is necessary to live according to your word. We are not enslaved to this world. We are not enslaved to our sin. And we have your word and the sure promise of your word that when we walk in obedience, you give us the grace that is necessary to fulfill what you have called us to as your children. Help us, O God, to have faith, to trust you, to love you, and to know that you are with us wherever we go, all the days of our life, and that you will provide what's necessary. And I pray, God, that in our service for your kingdom's sake, that we not be puffed up with pride, that we not be arrogant, that we not be seeking after praise, but rather that we are reminded that it is all for your glory and that in our service to you, that we find great joy in knowing that you are pleased. Father, help us to shake our fleshly desire to be recognized and applauded by men. Help us, O God, to continue to serve regardless of the outcome, knowing that it is for your sake, for your great renown, and that in our obedience you will work in our hearts great joy and satisfaction in Christ alone. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that we are a maturing, gracious, loving people who in the joy of our salvation and a desire to be obedient to our master would faithfully walk and serve for your name's sake, for your glory. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.